Talking benefits. 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 Talking. Talking. Talking benefits. You're listening to Talking Benefits, the podcast brought to you by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans. Every month, we dive into retirement, healthcare, hot topics and trends, and whatever else the benefits industry throws at us. I'm Justin Held. I'm Julie Stick. I'm Ann Patterson. Let's talk benefits. So welcome back, Talking Benefits listeners. It's Justin Held here. Today, we're going to be talking disability benefits, including long-haul COVID-19 symptoms or long COVID, qualifying for protection under the Americans with Disabilities Act or ADA. We have a fantastic guest joining us today to share her insights on the topic. Kelly Grimes, Manager of Health Services of Mutual of Omaha Insurance Companies. Kelly, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Talking Benefits podcast. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. So just a little background for our listeners. Kelly is a registered nurse and certified ADA coordinator. At Mutual of Omaha, she provides oversight for all health service functions, including integrated employee disability case management, FMLA administration, ADA administration, workers' comp, ergonomics, wellness programs, and on-site clinic offerings. Her goal is to support a culture of health, wellness, and inclusivity. Uh, So definitely sounds like Kelly's job is not boring. So Kelly, let's jump right in. Great. So recently, the Biden administration announced that uh, long COVID is a covered disability under ADA if it impairs a major life activity. Can you explain what that means and how employers can prepare for this? Sure. So first, I think as a nurse, this was a hugely important acknowledgement and the risks associated with contracting COVID. You know, for the last year, people have discussed COVID in terms of hospitalizations and deaths. And the constant review of those numbers focused on these elements alone. And in my opinion, discounted the significant effects many Americans face who are not hospitalized. This formalized recognition from the administration signals a really important step in highlighting that a COVID diagnosis can result in a wide range of new or ongoing symptoms, some of which can last weeks or months after an individual is infected with the virus. From an ADA perspective, I think it's really important for employers specifically to remember a couple things. The ADA provides protections for individuals with a disability, and they define that in three different ways. We tend to think about the first most often, an actual disability, and certainly this announcement would qualify an individual with signs and symptoms as having that physical or mental impairment that would qualify for a disability. The second is a record of a disability of that type of an impairment. So as we're collecting all of our notes and tracking how our people are doing and their comings and goings and whether they're vaccinated or not, it's important to center ourselves in what the ADA says about maintaining those records. And the third, the one that I think is probably most prudent to discuss with HR professionals currently is the regarded as definition. So if an individual is being regarded as having a disability, they would qualify for those ADA protections as well. The current healthcare environment is certainly weird, is how I'll say it. More people are talking openly with coworkers, managers, and everyone about their potential COVID statuses, what they're experiencing, what their family members are experiencing. And we need to ensure that our teams are trained not to make assumptions or regard individuals as disabled. So a question that I had from an employee perspective is, how do you know that you have long COVID? And do you need a doctor's note to prove to your employer that you're displaying specific symptoms? Yeah, so anyone who's experiencing ongoing effects or unresolved symptoms of COVID or any other diagnosis should be working in close consultation with their healthcare provider on a personalized treatment plan. 
Given the high variability of these types of side effects individuals may have associated with long COVID, it would be important to address the challenges in real time that you are experiencing individually. So it's hard to define as an employer what that might look like in your population. So we do rely on the ADA's definition and ability to obtain medical documentation as part of that interactive process in order to understand what our employees are going through, what their needs may be, and have them outline in conjunction with their health provider for us what it is we can do to be supportive of them in those instances. Similarly, I think most medical leave plans or disability plans do require individuals to demonstrate a period of incapacity or disability from work in order to substantiate those pay or leave benefits. So it wouldn't be uncommon that your employer would ask for that or for HR professionals to be outlining that sort of documentation. Again, we need to make sure we're taking all of the right provisions to safeguard that as medical information, just knowing how open they may be. We as HR teammates should make sure to treat that with the appropriate confidence confidentiality. And conversely, I think it's always top of mind during a global pandemic to remember that our current healthcare systems are under immense stress. So the associate's ability to obtain real-time medical documentation may look very different in a pandemic than it does in traditional times. So mm-hmm. flexibility, working with positive intent are, are the ways we like to think about it at Mutual. How can we assume positive intent to try to support our associates proactively and keep them successful in the event that they can't chase down that documentation or a provider doesn't have time? to provide it. That makes sense. So I'm just going to quick switch gears here. For employers planning to mandate the COVID vaccine, are there any ADA considerations to keep in mind? There are, and it's such a timely question as we're hearing of several large employers moving to mandate vaccines or creating vaccine policies that require proof or attestation about vaccination as requirement for participation in in in-person events. Now it's important to note, I'm not an attorney. That was not in my list of qualifications. So by all means, individualized guidance about your situation is important, but employers do need to weigh the risks associated with your population, the nature of your business. Are you, you know, client and employee facing as there significant risk to others if you don't require vaccination amongst your population? Certainly that's been the outcome in healthcare environments. They've argued the, the risk to others is higher if they don't require vaccination. The EEOC does have a number of anti-discrimination laws, the ADA, the Rehabilitation Act, the Civil Rights Act, where this vaccination protocol would need individualized assessment. And there may need to be caveats to any sort of mandates or requirements given someone's medical status or religious preference. So, you know, I think those are all important pieces to weigh as you're developing your strategy. You know, I think most employers want to do the right thing by their associates and for society. And we realize that vaccination is a huge step in getting us through this pandemic, but it's important to weigh all those caveats. One consideration I know is top of mind is OSHA requirements and the Department of Labor and OSHA have come out strong encouraging COVID-19 vaccinations. They've also stated they do not want to disincentivize any employer's vaccination efforts, so they are foregoing the necessity to record side effects through May of 2022, which I know is always important from a workers' compensation perspective. A key consideration, I believe, will also be full FDA approval. Many are hesitant to receive the vaccine and many are hesitant to mandate a treatment plan that hasn't been fully approved by the FDA. So certainly something to watch in the coming weeks as we approach potential full authorization of those vaccinations rather than emergency authorization status. All Mm. that to say, it's a lot to consider. (laughs) Now, that's the the thing that we've heard uh, over and over through our research is uh, not mandate, but strongly encourage was the 
was the language that's being echoed. You had mentioned that short and long-term disability benefit plans uh, may cover COVID-related disabilities. Do you anticipate that contracts will be revised uh, specifically for these processes? I think a lot of plan language has been adapted in the last year, certainly. I know there was initial groundswell to review plans and contracts right as the pandemic was coming to its inception, and certainly we've been in a period of constant review ever since. To your earlier point about the ongoing nature of long COVID, employers should be prepared for large portions of their population, both employees or customers, to suffer long-term side effects of COVID-19. We are just very early into the long-term research about what impact this will have on our employees. And so it's important to know that this could be around for a while and maybe not in the traditional sense we think about it right now. Our internal employee short-term disability plan does just what we talked about. It outlines the need for medical disability as part of the qualifications of benefits. So for us, this would mean that associates who experience that period of disability related to their COVID-19 symptoms, whether it's during an active infection or during long-term side effects, would be eligible for utilization of that plan. As always, other plans have the opportunity to list exclusions or provisions, and it's always wise for employers and employees alike to review the plans to make sure that they're familiar and ensure that their policy language reflects their intention. I do think formal recognition of long COVID as a disability means employers need to know that they may see these claims from their associates, their dependence on the medical plan for much longer than we previously thought. And from a healthcare plan perspective, we should be aware that associates receiving care on the plan this year for an active diagnosis of COVID may translate into persistent claims or chronic ongoing claims for a secondary condition that arises as a result of their symptoms for years to come. And that remains to be seen just what exactly that impact will be. One additional caveat that we're talking about here that I think all employers should be talking about is this pandemic will have long-lasting effects on employees overall. COVID aside, mental and emotional health concerns are at an all-time high. We, we talk a lot about social isolation and the impact of that on mental and emotional health. The CDC's guidance about respiratory viruses in the last couple of weeks and their anticipation that that will continue to swell means that our associates are going to have long-lasting side effects from this pandemic and from living through the global pandemic that we're not necessarily aware of yet either. 46% of Americans are cited to has, have skipped their preventative care opportunities in 2020 in a recent Mercer survey. And as a healthcare manager and nurse, that gives me a lot of concern about the lingering effects this will have on employee well-being for years to come. Yeah, in some of our recent research, we found increases in claims for telehealth, mental health claims, uh, but also slight increases in uh, EAP utilization, a benefit that's got pretty low utilization overall. So hopefully a little bit of silver lining is workers maybe valuing some of the benefits that are already existing there, hopefully. There's such a huge importance on breaking down that stigma, right? Yeah. Um, making employees aware of the resources is one thing, and certainly similar to what you've said, we've seen that increased utilization in EAP, and we hope that continues and persists, we know that there is a huge barrier in breaking down that wall to even recognize it in yourself, call, reach out, make those opportunities available to people. And so it is something we are focused on. We're putting together 12-month strategies on top of mm. what we've already had in flight to make sure that it's an all-hands-on-deck effort. It needs to be individualized and personalized. We need to look at team resiliency and mental health. We need to make sure that our associates are ready to make mindful choices and recognize the needs they have when they arise because it's very fluid and will not be isolated to just this pandemic or to just COVID. We need resilient populations going forward. 
And the ways in which we work, the shift in where we work often provides a little bit of a barrier in seeing people every day and, and understanding where they may be. And so we've got to think about it in unique ways, how we can reach people where they are in the moment. Yeah, it's one of the challenges of the work from home population. We just finished our most recent mental health survey, and we always ask organizations about the prevalence of mental health conditions within their workplace. And the percentage of natures skyrocketed from just two years ago because no one's in the office. So how am I going to observe these changes? The International Foundation has over 32,000 members across the U.S. and Canada from all walks of the work world, and we'd love it if you join our ranks. Foundation members get a ton of benefits like discounted registration for our many educational events, free webcasts, and legal and legislative updates, just to name a few. See what the Foundation can do for you. Visit ifebp.org membership today. I'm going to jump over to another ADA adjacent topic, the inclusion of neurodivergent workers. So neurodiversity refers to the differences in brain function among humans and includes people who have conditions such as dyslexia, ADHD, or are on the autism spectrum. A recent study found that about one in five employees stated that they did not apply for a job because the company lacked the resources for identifying as neurodivergent. Uh, additionally, 80% of respondents say that they'd be more likely to apply uh, to a company who had materials for employees uh, identifying as neurodivergent. Can you explore this topic just a little bit more? Sure. You know, I think talent attraction and retention overall is a huge focus for so many employers, particularly given the current labor market. And it's one area we all should continue to hone and focus our efforts, particularly because, as you mentioned, we know there is a significant portion of the workforce that we may be missing or may not be appealing to. Our talent teams here work closely with both local and national organizations to build and to foster talent pipelines for all types of diverse work. We recognize there's talent externally who may not be eyeing our company or that we would love to engage and attract. Locally, our vocational rehab partners have been phenomenal in consulting on how and where we have opportunities to make roles more accessible and where we can publicize the on-the-job accommodations we do have available, knowing how eager we are to work with individuals on a one-on-one basis. We've been working really hard to identify how we can publicize that to make Mutual of Omaha specifically a more inclusive employer. But I think for employers overall, We need to consider how you make the application process, the onboarding, and the full employment experience inclusive to individuals of all types of abilities. That role optimization that I mentioned, you know, we've worked with several nonprofits here to talk through how neurodivergence might be targeted specifically. We've got a ways to go, but I think the first step for employers is realizing if you don't have neurodivergent workers in your workforce, or if you don't know if you do, you're missing some significant talent gaps. As we've learned about the evolution of these diagnoses, there are so many skills, viewpoints, areas where they excel, where neurotypical associates do not. And so without having them in the right roles or having them in a seat at your table, we're just missing out as employers. One step we've seen take off um, and really assist with education for our population and help break down some of those barriers to discussion is with our employee resource groups. We've got an employee resource group at Mutual. It's named Advocates for All Abilities, affectionately nicknamed A3. The group has done significant work to publicize neurodivergence, particularly autism and the experiences of associates and family members with autism. They've worked hard to educate managers and employees about the experiences or 
or that they've experienced themselves at work, what's helped them either excel in their roles or overcome challenges within their roles, what resources and tools they've used, or what they've observed in family members and loved ones who have just navigated daily life, what the challenges are, what the opportunities are. Helping provide that framework for discussion really makes it an approachable topic when so many people want to be having the conversation, just don't know where to start or how to do it. Very important steps to get that process started. That sounds fantastic. Are there any other ways that you see the groundswell around DEI initiatives impacting applicants and employees with disabilities? Certainly. I think you mentioned earlier the shift in location of work, the move to more telehealth, more remote work is certainly an an opportunity and a challenge in and of itself for individuals with varying ability levels. So some relied on the accesses, the tools that we had during in-person work that would help them excel in their role. Others have seen a dramatic increase in their quality of life, their productivity, being in a fully remote environment. I think employers in general need to recognize the need for flexibility and the need to focus on the work. I'll say, you know, we need to make sure that we're managing associates in a way that allows them to excel and be at their best while they're at work, whether that's in the office, at home. We as employers should be looking for opportunities and listening to our associates when they say things about what they need or what would make them more productive. We should all strive to make sure that our associates are supported through those situations for better productivity, better outcomes overall. It's just an opportunity for mutual benefit. I think it's critical to maintain the focus on individual health and well-being. It's never been more apparent than, than this last year that associates need clear, reliable communication from their employers. You know, specific to COVID, we heard that three-fourths of Americans were looking to their company for solid, factual information about the pandemic over the last year. So I think it's important for employers to recognize the role they play in activities of daily living and how their associates might be navigating their life as an individual with a disability disability, knowing how big that work imprint has on your daily life. And then I think the ongoing war for talent is going to demand that we react differently and we support associates in being just as flexible as we can to support their needs on a daily basis. Absolutely. So pivoting to that health and welfare topic that you were discussing, in January, the EEOC issued a proposed rule stating that wellness programs that include health questions and exams will be limited to offering de minimis incentives to promote participation. The proposed rule was then withdrawn in February of 2021 because they weren't published in the Federal Register by the time that President Biden was inaugurated. So with no guidance on the horizon, do you have any advice for employers that want to incentivize participation in wellness programs? I think the return on investment for wellness programs is one of those things that's been hard to quantify for a long time. We know it's the right thing to do. We know it's a necessary investment for our people, but demonstrating the return on that investment is sometimes hard. Employers often turn to providing incentives to try to ensure that their populations are either participating enough in those wellness programs or in the ways that they would like. Specifically, we've heard about it recently with With COVID vaccines, there's a lot of companies rather than mandated are taking the position that they, you know, would like to incentivize vaccination rates. I think this is one area where you will continue to see the legislation evolve and you will continue to see that balance between employers wanting to be parental and providing the right opportunities for people and there continuing to be a device between what you can and can't do as an employer to overreach into impacting those outcomes. A Mm -hmm. lot of employers are looking to 
to see whether or not they should do things like offer premium reductions or incentives or benefits associated with healthcare plans for individuals who receive the vaccination. You've seen it other places as a, they call it a smoker's tax, you know, higher mm. premiums for those who smoke or who are not vaccinated, for example. I think this is an evolution we'll see rise considerably over the next six months, and I'll be anxious to see where it goes. Anything else employers should be focusing on that we haven't covered so far? I know this has been a pretty uh, wide-ranging conversation. So, <laughs> Sure. I think, you know, the only thing we haven't really talked about as it pertains to COVID and vaccination that we also have on our radar is how the conversation surrounding vaccination and the polarization surrounding vaccination will affect our associates long-term. Because it's been politicized and because the stance on vaccination varies so widely, particularly with COVID, it's going to be important for businesses to monitor monitor how this impacts the health of their associates and their dependents overall. Tracking vaccination rates on our healthcare plans or through data partnerships with our PBMs will be increasingly important to make sure that the populations we serve continue to vaccinate for all other illnesses. You've seen the state of Tennessee recently introduce legislation that broadly encompasses protections for all vaccine information. And so we are tracking how this will ripple through preventative health measures beyond just COVID-19. Well, thank you for joining us, Kelly. Like I said, that was a very wide-ranging conversation with lots of fantastic topics that were addressed. So thank you so much. And that will wrap up this month's episode. On behalf of my co-hosts, Julie Stick and Ann Patterson, Thank you all for listening. I also want to give a listener shout out to our former podcast host, Kelly Kozrud. While you may not be on the mic anymore, you're still part of the pod squad forever and always. Talking Benefits will be back in your podcast feeds next month. If you like what you hear, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find the podcast. And subscribe to the show in your podcast app so that our episodes will automatically appear on your mobile device. Talking Benefits is a production of the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans, the largest educational association for those working in the benefits industry. If you're into benefits, check out all that the International Foundation has to offer at ifebp.org. Our show is hosted by Julie Stick, Ann Patterson, and me, Justin Held, produced by Rose Pleva and Stacey Van Alstyne, and edited by Amanda Gilsmer. Today's program is copyrighted in 2021 by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans, all rights reserved. The opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and not to be used as legal counsel. Awesome. Sorry, I I, I read myself as a co-host. I forgot to change that one. Weird. (laughs) Weird.